Hey folks, it's Jeremy, the host of Blamo. Thanks so much for listening. This is a preview of one of our exclusive shows on Patreon. These are member-supported shows, meaning they only happen because of our incredible members and community. So check out a preview of the episode, and if you like it, consider joining us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Blamo, where we have tons of exclusive Blamo episodes, shows, our amazing Slack group, and we're adding new things for members all the time. If not, no worries, we still love you, and we literally have hundreds of episodes of Blamo all free for you to dive into. Thanks so much. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Die Work Group podcast. My name is Derek Guy, and my co-host is Peter Zotello. So, I've been reading Eugene Rabkin for over a decade. He's the founder of Style Zeitgeist, a fashion forum dedicated to the avant-garde, and a freelance fashion writer who has contributed to the New York Times, Business of Fashion, and Airmail. I always take the time to read his work because he's not afraid to run counter to a lot of popular opinion and criticize things that I think ought to be criticized. In the last few years, he's been especially critical of hype designer lines that have co-opted streetwear. In an industry where almost every piece of fashion writing is laudatory, often bordering on PR, I think Eugene's voice is very necessary. In late November, he wrote something at Style Zeitgeist about the rich kids in Shanghai who wear conspicuous designer clothes and dance to bad music. He used the term intelligence of taste to describe modes of consumption that are better, perhaps even more cultured. To be honest, this view is not unlike what you might find in some diehard classic menswear circles. But since Eugene's heart lies in things such as Rick Owens and Comme de Garçon, you know it's not just because he's a stuffed shirt type who thinks everyone should wear a suit. Peter and I talk about what it might mean to dress with intelligence, and how our judgments of taste are often loaded with cultural biases. Hey Derek, good to see you. How you doing? It's great to see you. Um, we just both came back from Fred Nidu's trunk show. Yes. And you got a fantastic cashmere sport coat. I did. Um, Very happy with it. Really, really nice. I used to always kind of, I'm going to be honest, I used to think cashmere sport coats didn't make any sense because <laughs> like you're not wearing it next to your skin, right? Like y- your experience is basically Oxford cloth or whatever your shirt True. is. But I spoke to George Wang over at Brio a couple of years ago, maybe it was last year. And he said that he feels that he's almost only wearing cashmere sport coats now because- he, he noted that tweed is just very stiff. It is. And he likes the comfort of a cashmere sport coat. And I went, and I tried your yours on, his words came to mind and it is very, very soft. It's not that it's next to your skin. It's just that when you move around in it, the fabric itself is very sweater-like, even yes. though it's not knitted. It just feels like you're in a sweater. It's really nice. I wonder what the difference is between Shetland coats which bag almost immediately, but have a similar quality in that they're very soft, they're very loose, they're very easy to wear, break-in period is zero. And cashmere, because all of my Shetland tweed sport coats eventually look baggy, which is okay. It's a look. It won't have that, hey, I'm wearing a suit, jacket kind of look, which I don't know if I want in a cashmere sport coat. So I guess it'll wear well. It'll break in well. Yeah. I, let us know how that ages. I really liked your jacket, but it wasn't from George. It was from somewhere else. And it's not cashmere. It's a tweed. Yeah. Mine is um, from Love It. It's a Love It tweed. And it was um, commissioned by Michael Alden over at the London Lounge. Um, London Lounge is an online forum for kind of like bespoke tailoring enthusiasts, if you will. And um, I think Michael has great taste. He 
draws a lot from like 1930s apparel arts Esquire drawings. And, you know, his he just has an eye for things. Um, the blue tweed that he commissioned, if you go through Lovett's fabric swatch books, the blues are a little bit too blue, and Michael you mean had saturated they're or kind of um. It's just it's just a blue. It's just like it's like your jeans, you ah. know. It's just a blue blue tweed, and they look nice. But Michael put a bit more gray in his, ah. and I think it looks. Um, I like it more that way. It's a colder color. I think it looks better in the winter, um, and it's easier to wear with like gray flannels, tan whip cords. Uh, Would you wear it with jeans? You know, as even though I, I write about you know like how to wear sport coats with jeans sometimes online, I don't personally wear sport coats with jeans. I just find it easier to wear it with trousers because I don't have to like think about some because the the cut between the sport coat and the jeans has to work, and you can't always it doesn't always work with all jeans. Like That's if you true. get like really slim jeans, it's gonna look like you're like top heavy floating on sticks. And if you get them too wide. Then it throws off the look of the sport coat. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. I like it on some guys. I like it on you. Uh, but I personally do not wear sport coats with jeans. But it does seem, you know, if you're going to wear a sport coat with jeans, certainly tweed is like the easiest choice. And if you wear jeans, I think they look best with slightly higher rise jeans and a slight taper so that it looks a little dressier than the jeans that I would wear to work. Yeah. I think 19, uh, Levi's Vintage Clothing, it's 1947 501s, um, which is the obviously the 1947 version of their 501s, which has gone through many iterations over, uh, it's been like over a century. Um, I think that cut works really well with jeans or with sport coats. And you can find them pretty easily, relatively, um, certainly online. But I think if you go to many kind of like Levi's flagships, they may also have those. And you can try them on. You bring your sport coat and see whether or not you like to look. I haven't tried those. I usually go for Stevenson Overall Company, which you can get at self-edge stores, either in person or online. They have a really nice Carmel cut, which is slightly higher rise, button fly, really cool detailings on the pockets, single needle sti- uh, stitching, uh, slight taper as it goes past your knee. It's just a great, great... I'm wearing them now, actually. Yeah. Um, Orslo does 107 and 105, those two models. I've noticed a lot of guys wear those with sport coats and look really good. Yeah, those look good. Um and our friend, mutual friend Gus, he recommended, I think they're called Resolute Jeans. Yeah, he did the um, same thing. He, yeah, he recommended those to me too. He told me those are also really good. I don't know which model in the Resolute line is good, but might be something to look into. Gus wears sport coats with jeans all the time, and he always looks really good in, in the combo. So, you know, he's probably recommending a good model. You know what I was just reading recently? This might interest you. It's from Eugene Rabkin who has a website called Style Zeitgeist, which mostly has to do with avant-garde creative clothing, I would say. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, it's like Rick Owens, um, real artisanal kind of dark avant-garde stuff. Um, I learned about, um, you no longer make jewelry, but the ring that you're wearing, um, K... Kei Shibagawa. Yes. He, I learned about them uh, first through Style Zeitgeist. Really? I mean, I mean, Eugene cites a, a treasure trove of these kind of like um, real, I mean, artisanal is such a corny word, but, you know, really like artisanal kind of like um, creative, dark avant-garde kind of makers. He wrote a post very recently in November. I'll just read it. The other day I had dinner with a fashion and culture commentator who is based in Asia. He was describing the scene at a party celebrating the newly opened Prada flagship in Shanghai. How the impeccably tasteful shop was filled with young kids with too much money 
and Too Little Taste, dancing to bad music in celebration of conspicuous consumption. That's who buys the stuff, he concluded. And with this one phrase, he got to the crux of why many of you cannot relate to luxury fashion. Simply put, if you are a person of taste, intelligence, in possession of a certain attenuated sensibility, a degree of elegance, and sophistication, today you are not luxury fashion's target audience. It wasn't always thus, and taking a glimpse at the history of contemporary fashion is helpful here. Fashion, being a marker of status, amongst other things, has always had a tug-of-war between the sophisticates and the vulgarians. The birth of at least nominally classless society after the American and French revolutions also gave birth to the dandy, whom the French poet Baudelaire, in his modernity-defying essay, The Painter of Modern Life, described as the first aristocrat marked not by birth, but by taste. Beau Brummel, widely considered to be the first dandy, was of humble origin, but he lifted himself through paying utmost attention to taste, not only in dress, but in manners, setting the blueprint for the dandies who came after him until a deep but popular misreading of Oscar Wilde's life began to equate dandyism with peacocking. Here, our postmodern culture did what it does best, decoupling a look from its meaning. But Wilde, like many dandies before him, was the absolute paragon of sensibility as a marker of intelligence. And there is such a thing as intelligence of taste. Don't let the poptimists tell you otherwise. One is not born with a sensibility. Sensibility is acquired through education and effort, all led by curiosity and a desire for self-creation and self-betterment. And today it's open to anyone, if only one is willing to make the effort. So, a lot to <laughs> unpack there, but, and I don't want to take what he says out of context, but he does speak of an intelligence of taste, which I thought was interesting. What do you think about that? So I would say I've followed Eugene's writing for many years now. And often he says things that I think I'm glad someone is saying it It, at a time where sometimes I look at what's going on in fashion. I just think, what the hell is going on? And, you know, like Eugene is a, if you follow fashion, you know, he is a, um, I don't know if you call him high profile, but he has certainly a strong platform. And I appreciate that someone in his position is pushing back against what has become just out of control hype culture. That said, I strongly disagree with the framing of taste in this post. I've often said that I think of clothes and style as a cultural language. And there are two ways that people often frame the idea of good taste. You can think of good taste in terms of some type of like scientific thing, like um, this thing is objectively beautiful and you know, like it follows these principles of beauty and I don't know, like color combinations and lines and whatever. You wrote an article referencing a particular philosopher, if I'm not mistaken. Bordeaux. Yes. Yes. Uh, Distinction is, I mean, he's, he's famous for a lot of work, but the, the book that I heavily referenced was Distinction. Um, and so I, I think of taste more in the kind of sociological sense in that um, I think of taste as language. And when I, when I hear the intelligence of taste, I think of all the earlier, all the people who have written about style and framed it in terms of these like scientific aspects of this line goes with that line and this color goes with that color. I want to first note that since this is a menswear podcast, we should probably focus primarily on menswear. And I think that's not only befitting of the structure of the podcast, but it's hard to discuss taste if we are to lump everything in cultural consumption 
into this category. So like, I can't imagine talking about this for oh, also talking about like architecture, architecture and, right. and music and books and food and, and clothing. I, I think once you get into that realm, the conversation lacks specificity and traction. Okay. So just talking about clothing. Let's narrow to, it down. To give an example, when Michael Anton, who went by Manton on Style Forum, um, Michael, as, as many know, he was one of the national security advisors for Trump and he was also pushed Junior's speechwriter. But on Style Forum, he was a very kind of, um, his views held a lot of weight because he knows a lot about clothes. And he starred a thread at one point called Winnie's Good Taste Thread. I remember that. I don't really know why it was named after Winnie. Winnie was another member in the forum. So uh, Michael basically was frustrated with what he saw as a lack of good taste on the forum. And he opened this thread and the point of the thread was basically post an outfit and I will tell you if it's in good taste or bad taste and how to improve. And since Michael's views held a lot of weight, a lot of people were eager to get feedback. And I think if you were to wade into that discussion, you might get, it might seem very arbitrary. Like, why did Michael say this is good taste and that's bad taste? Why, why are, why is this shade of brown good taste and that shade of brown bad taste? Why is a, a white shirt here considered bad taste, but a blue shirt there is considered good taste? It seemed very random. It was just like, who is this guy and who is, what, why does he get to dictate? But it makes total sense if you understand Michael's taste and the idea of good taste, capital G, capital T, in terms of the taste of the ruling class in France, England, and the United States from about, let's say, the 1920s to about the 1980s. And after the 1980s, this group became increasingly irrelevant. Um, I recently wrote something for the New York Times about Frasier's, Frasier, the TV show, recently had a reboot. And Frasier is kind of like a social climber, a guy that went to, you know, he his father was a police officer, had somewhat kind of like humble origins, went to Harvard, went to Oxford. Um became a very culture guy and always wants to be seen as part of the... The elite, the upper class. Yeah, the upper class, the, the sophisticated. So in the early days of Frasier, he dressed like um, like a trad, right? Like like what is discussed on the forum Ask Andy. He, he wore uh, brown tweeds. He wore, uh, you know, uh, burgundy paisley ties. He wore button-down collars. Because in the 80s and tapering off into the 90s, that look, based off of those that had political, social, economic power, still dressed like that. Yeah, right, exactly. And over time, now when you look at the reboot, he's wearing, um, I, I listed a bunch of uh, examples in my article, but to give an example, he's wearing a fleece vest. He, he rarely wears a tie. When he wears a suit, it's like the jacket is a little bit too trim and a little bit too short. Um, he wears sneakers. You, I, I don't think I've seen a single episode where he wears leather dress shoes. It's always, and it's not just sneakers. It's like the very middle class, like two, $300 sneakers, like APL, on common clouds. projects. No, he doesn't wear common projects. That would be too fashionable. But you know, it's basically what um, <laughs> a man in his sixties with some money would would be wearing. I see. Um, they're not Nikes. They're not Vans. You know, they're very middle. They they're sneakers that telegraph that you have money and that you are of a respectable class, if you will, quote unquote. And the reason uh, what I noted in in that um, article is that the reason he dresses like that now is because the centers of power have shifted. That class of the 1980s has become increasingly irrelevant. And the people that now have social, economic, and political power are people like Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, Tim Cook, 
Like these are the people that are a very dressed down tech crowd. And so naturally our idea of what it means to dress as an elite changes. So to this idea of the intelligence of taste, I will say there is a part of me and I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to stoke identity politics or anything, but I will say as an Asian person, I do recognize that the class that is being referenced here are, and I'm not, uh, I do not at all want to be misconstrued as me saying that Eugene is racist or anything, but I just want to frame it in terms of how we understand taste. I think that this class that we're referencing are essentially wealthy East Asians, mostly Chinese and some Russians. And it's hard to look at this type of consumption if you're based in the West without a Western bias. It's hard. Mark, uh, David Marx's book, um, uh, Status and Culture, is about how our pursuit of status changes culture. And he has a really good um, uh, chart somewhere in his book where he lists the different classes. And at the very uh, top class is old money. It's people who have um, essentially generational wealth, like the Rockefellers, right? And then under them is new money. And new money is like Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Conor McGregor kind of people. And then um, under them is the middle class. And then I think he maybe delineates two, one or two more classes below that. Obviously, that, the economic poor, then maybe has some other class below that. But for these different classes, he lists whether this group has high or low social capital and financial capital. And old money, according to David Marks in this book, is high in both cultural and financial capital. Even today. Well, yeah, that's contentious. But in, in his book, this is how he frames it. He thinks that old money is high in cultural capital and financial capital. New money, like Mark Zuckerberg, is moderate in um, cultural capital, but high in financial capital. And so if you're middle class and you are trying to signal that you are, in, in David's book, he, he thinks that there is a section of the middle class that sees themselves as the true kind of like, that they're better than new money, that they're better than Conor McGregor, that they're better than Mark Zuckerberg. They think those people have low cultural capital. So the way that they... But they can't beat them on the financial on the financial game game, right? Like I could never beat Mark Zuckerberg or Conor McGregor or even like the guy who made a fortune off of real estate like across the street or something. I can't match that kind of level of wealth because I don't have that wealth. So how do I signal that my status jumps his on this social hierarchy tier? Well, I have to compete on the basis of taste. And I do that by mimicking old money taste. So in this framework, um, many, the old money just has the taste that they have. It's just their lifestyle. And then the middle class basically mimics old money taste in order to seem more sophisticated than new money. So when when I when I hear that excerpt, it I think whoever is agreeing with it, they are probably based in a Western country. And it's hard to then look at this cultural consumption without the bias of being a Westerner, likely middle class, that's trying to mimic old money taste and seeing this and saying, well, I am better than you because um, I know the kind of like old ways. I, I, I want to relay, I lived in Russia for about two years, um, right around the time of there were these like massive um, protests against Putin uh, around 2013. And there was a moment that really stuck out to me. Um, the woman I was with at the time, somewhat at her law firm, was uh, was hosting a birthday party and they were going to, they, they rented out the space in, in Moscow. It was like a really nice restaurant bar kind of thing. And um, 
you know, both of us got invited. So we got dressed up for the night to go there. And this, this person like rented out the entire place. Like no one else was allowed to go in there. She rented out the whole place for her birthday. So, you know, I, we got dressed up and we went there and I wore similar to what I'm wearing today. Like just tan trousers, light blue Oxford button down shirt and a Navy sport coat, uh, brown dress shoes you know, kind of like pretty standard. And I thought that that was like in the U.S., that's basically how you dress to signal that you belong at a place where someone may have rented out an entire restaurant and bar for their birthday, right? I thought I was dressed appropriately. So we we go to this place and we go, we wait in line. Once we get to the front of the line, the bouncer looks me up, up and down and Want says- Want to hear the rest? Listen to the full episode and many more other exclusive episodes over on our Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash Blamo to sign up and join the Blam fam. You also get access to our exclusive members only Slack group where we chat about this and a ton of other things. So head over to patreon.com forward slash Blamo and we'll see you there. <laughs>